hope you have your Bibles, and if you do, turn with me to Philemon. Philemon, we're going through this little book. This little book is just jam-packed with truth, and the way we have summed up the, mes- the message of this book is real fellowship in Christ breaks through barriers to refreshing relationships with one another. Real fellowship breaks through barriers. And sometimes those barriers are laziness, apathy, self-orientation, self-gratification, whatever they are. Hardness of hearts, a refusal to forgive. We've got to break through those. And we've already learned two barriers that we must break through. And so we've learned already that the first barrier is not understanding and applying the four fundamentals of real fellowship. And just to review, it can never be forced on one another. We'll talk a lot about that today. It is always the result from releasing our rights. It's always personal, never private. This is a a personal letter, but it's not a private letter. It's for the church, and it's been for the church down through history. And it's never possible apart from grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But last week, we saw that... There's a second barrier, not experiencing the three benchmarks of real fellowship. Listen, you're not going to help others have fellowship if you're not experiencing it. And that is a real problem, especially post-COVID. But it's just a problem among Christians that when you're not experiencing this, then you're not going to be burdened for others. And really, this is where when we're inviting people to Easter, if we're not enjoying fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ, rich and growing in our relationship, if that, and, and, and therefore that overflows and we want to share that with others, well, if that's not happening, well, why do I want to invite someone to experience that which I'm not enjoying? And so that's really why we looked at these three benchmarks, radiating fellowship, radical fellowship, and refreshing. Now, I want to share with you an illustration of this. As you, uh, if you, if you graduate from institutions, and, and the more you graduate from, the more you get alumni uh, magazines. And so my alumni magazine came from Dallas Seminary this past week, and it had an article in it called The Gift of Brotherly Love. And it was a story about... Uh, the man who is the director of alumni relations, his name's Greg. We, we started at Dallas the same year. I know who know him. And it's a story about him and another Dallas student that they met. And these men became close friends. But more than that, they became, they formed a bond of brotherhood. They had fellowship like we're talking about, like Philemon had, refreshing the hearts of the saints. But what happened was one, the, one of the men needed a kidney transplant, okay? And so Greg, out of this fellowship, said, I'm going to give you one of my kidneys, okay? And, uh, and that sounds great in theory until you get closer to the operation. Now, kidney transplants and donors are, it, it's relatively a safe procedure, but there's always risk, right? And as it got closer, Greg's family gathered around him and said, Dad, are you sure you want to give this to this to your friend? I know he's your friend, but really? And he said, no, I know this is what God wants me to do. And, and the, the, the man, the brother in Christ who needed the kidney 
had all sorts of siblings and everything, but he said, no, I just know. And it's a great story, and I can direct you to it if you want to read it, but these men's fellowship through this was so great. And I read this this paragraph, and I thought, this is our study. Uh, The heading of the paragraph is Demonstrating Brotherly Love. The posture of brotherly love radiated outward from Greg and Stephen and exerted its beautiful influence on everyone around them throughout the transplant process. And I'm like, that's what we just studied, radiating fellowship. It impacted. It says, uh, on the morning of July 28th, 2022, they went to the hospital for surgery. The procedures went perfectly. Over the next few days, the joy and love Love they share, they share were evident to everyone in the recovery floor of the hospital. One time, Greg walked from his room to Stevens and said, "Hey, Bramer, the guy's named Stephen Bramer. Hey, Bramer, I lost a kidney, and I think it's in here." <laughs> okay, and they're just joking and carrying on, and uh, they're joking back and forth, and the banter as they recovered together drew the attention of the nurses who would come in from the hallway just to listen. They couldn't believe all the interaction between these two patients. So, you know, here they are, it says kidney buddies for life, and I run on spare parts. So there you go. But I just thought, I mean, that paragraph, I mean, I don't know, you know, I guess they're Dallas students, maybe they studied Philemon. The posture of brotherly love radiated outward and exerted its beautiful influence on everyone around them throughout the translate. Isn't that awesome? That's what fellowship can do if we will apply this to our lives. But there's a third barrier this morning, and it's this one. Not removing. Not removing the roadblocks to reconciliation. And we find this in the heart of the passage, 8 through 17. So, in a sense... Paul has set Philemon up for the heart of the passage. So let's look at it. I'm going to read through it. Follow along in your Bible. Verse 8. Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you. Since I am such a person as Paul, the aged, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, spiritual child, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. I have sent him back to you in person. That is sending my very heart whom I wish to keep with me, so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything, so that your goodness would not be, as it were, by compulsion, but of your own free will. For perhaps he was, for this reason, separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? If then you regard me as a partner, accept him 
as you would me. Wow. Right there we see the goal of reconciliation is this. Releasing people from bondage and receiving them as brothers and sisters in Christ. The goal of reconciliation. Releasing others out of bondage so that we might receive them as brothers and sisters. Like these two guys that I shared about with their kidney transplant. But the number one barrier to doing this, the number one barrier to doing this is a lack of love. It is a lack of love. Um, That's that refuses to forgive and to be reconciled. And that's the heart of these verses. It's the idea that let that love that you have, that love that you have toward the saints, now you got to let it flow over into this person who has wronged you and who has offended you and, and even stolen from you. So how do you break through this barrier? By asking the Lord to make the fellowship of your faith effective. That's verse 6. He's saying, look, it needs to be effective in this. But specifically, Philemon's going to have to be willing to forgive the undeserving. Did Onesimus deserve to be forgiven? Hmm? No. No. He's in the wrong. He has a debt. Yes, he could not only beaten, but even killed. So he doesn't deserve to be forgiven. None of us do. None of us do. But you, you, here's the key. You've got to be willing to forgive the undeserving and reconcile with the repenting. So we don't just indiscriminately going around forgiving people who are remaining in their sin. You, you, you forgive the undeserving as they repent and come to you and ask forgiveness. Then... You reconcile with the repenting. But here's the warning. The warning is this. As you learn how to remove these roadblocks to reconciliation, it can result in real fellowship that is radiating, radical, and refreshing. This is how you get to the benchmarks. You've got to do this. Now, why is this? Look in your notes. I, I just There's so much richness in this little letter. Real fellowship is able to change both people and their problems. All three of these men have been changed by real fellowship. It can change the controlling person into a consoling person like Paul. You realize Paul was a very controlling. I mean, he, he was a he was a madman that would enter into homes and yank people out, men and women and and kill them and arrest them uh, as as defectors from the faith. He became a consoling person. It can change a useless person into a useful person like Onesimus, whose name means useful or profitable. He was useless. Paul basically acknowledges that. This guy was useless to you. Now he has been transformed. He's useful. It can change a rejecting person into a receiving person. Paul knows that Philemon, for all his godliness still has the temptation, he may not receive, he may reject. But I believe that through this letter, through the Spirit, and through the grace of God and the peace of Christ, he became a receiving person. But most of all, 
It can change you and me. It can change bondage into brotherhood. Look at verse 16. This is a picture of you and me in our sins. Look at verse 16. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother. We are brothers and sisters to the Lord Jesus Christ. We were once in bondage to sin. We have been, uh, we have been liberated and set free. That's what real fellowship. Remember this story is rub-a-dub-dub, three men in a tub of trouble. You've got the man in the mess, just like the rest of us, Onesimus. You've got the man who is master, but is he really? Is he really? Can he even master his own bitterness? And then you've got Paul, the man in the middle, who is like Christ. He is the mediator. And so we're going to look this Sunday and next at Paul, as he is a Christ-like mediator, and we're going to look at the five stages in the messy process of removing roadblocks to reconciliation. We'll look at stages one and two. I had them as steps, but these aren't things you can mark off. These are stages that you have to work through, and it is not like, oh, I'm going to do one, two, three, four, Five, and everything's going to be reconciled. No, it's a messy process, uh, and it, it's a, it can be a grueling one. But you can, by God's grace, remove roadblocks to reconciliation. So let's look at stages one and two this morning. Stage one, make a request, not a ruling. Make a request and not a ruling or a demand or a command. Look at verses 8 and 9. This is where he begins. Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you. The first principle that we see from this is really basic. Christ requires us to remove roadblocks to reconciliation as much as it depends on us. Christ requires it. Christ even commands it. Christ demands it of his people. But listen, you can't remove roadblocks in the hearts of others, but you can remove roadblocks in your heart. And, and we get that mixed up. In reconciliation, we want to start working on the hearts of others. And Christ requires us to remove roadblocks. But the roadblocks that we are first and foremost responsible for are in our own hearts. That's why he says, I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper or what is right or what is required. So Paul's not saying it's wrong to require people to act like Christians when they profess to be Christians. It is right and proper to demand that and expect that. Paul had the authority of an apostle. He had the authority of Scripture to command, even demand, that Philemon forgive Onesimus and be reconciled. This is what God requires of his children. But, but... For love's sake, he'd rather make an appeal. Rather than a ruling, he'd rather make a request. Rather than demanding, he'd rather appeal for love's sake. So that brings us to the second principle. 
Though Christ requires it, Christ prefers to request the obedience he requires rather than demand it. Isn't that amazing of our Savior, who is the Lord Jesus Christ, who has all authority in heaven and earth, and he looks at you and he says, I want to appeal to your heart. I want to woo you. I want to love you. Though I have the authority, and I will use it. It's just like a parent. Parents don't want to go around and have parenting be an authoritarian, demanding, uh, dictatorial relationship. You want to woo them. You want to love them. But listen, parents, you can't be so child-centered that you don't exercise authority and discipline when it's required. But love would rather appeal. What a beautiful thing. For love's sake, I rather appeal to you. Now, remember... What we're talking about here is the first fundamental of fellowship. And that is, you can't force it. You can't force it. And so that's why he's appealing. Paul wants Philemon to know that he had the right and the authority to force the issue. But he would prefer that Philemon would freely choose to do what is right out of love. Here's how the message, which is a paraphrase, and sometimes it's really good, sometimes it's not so good. In this case, it's really good. Listen to how it paraphrased this. I wouldn't hesitate to command this if I thought it was necessary, but I'd rather make it a personal request. So it's kind of that combination that we see in parenting. You know, I have the authority, but let's work this out. That's the idea. Now, I have in your notes the differences between making a request and making a demand. This is so practical. I hope this is helpful to you. So let's see the differences. And, 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 and as we go through these, it's an issue of posture, okay? It's an attitude. So look at the attitude that's in this. First of all, a demand focuses on one obligation. I want the other person to choose and do. So you can enter into this saying, okay, this is the outcome I want. You must do it. You should do this. You ought to do this. But a request focuses on the options the other person can choose to do. You would say it this way. Here's your options. You're free to choose what you want. But I'm asking you to choose this one. Do you see the difference? Secondly, a demand forces or or yeah, a demand forces the other person into a corner. You must do this, you have no other options. But a request frees them to back themselves into the corner. So here the idea is and and you also freeze God to back them into the corner on their on God's time and in God's way. Do you do you understand what I'm saying? So this is what you got to do, and you start backing them into the corner versus saying, "Hey, you've got choices here. Some are good, some are bad, some are right, some are wrong. But I'm not going to back you in. Instead, I'm going to trust the sovereign God that He'll back you into the corner in His time and in His way." takes more faith. Here are your options. You're free to choose. But here's the thing you say. You're free to choose, 
But recognize this, you're not free to always choose your consequences. Oh, you're free to choose. But God, or I may even have to choose some of your consequences depending on your choice. But you're free to choose. Third, a demand comes across as the condemnation of a judge, which kind of says, do this or else. A request, though, comes across as the compassion of a brother or sister in Christ. Please choose this. Please choose this for love's sake. Totally different attitude. A demand is a last resort when mutual respect is forfeited. You have to do this because God and I say so. And since I've got God on my side and you don't, you've got to do this. But a request is based on mutual respect. I love and respect you enough to ask you to do this. And I believe that you love and respect God enough to do what I'm asking. Now, we understand that if they don't love God and they don't do what they ought to do, then sometimes you have to say, your choice has made me or God to have to choose a hard route with you. So this isn't, you know, it's nuanced, okay? And then finally, a demand tries to break through the wall of relational roadblocks. You know, we, we've used this wall Im- imagery in, in, throughout this series. It, does, it breaks through the roadblocks by force, by intimidation, by manipulation. You're going to do this one way or the other because I'm responsible for you, okay? But a request tries to break through relational roadblocks, tries to break through the wall with love, respect, and ministry to the person. I love you enough to let you make the wrong choice and suffer your own consequences because I am responsible to you, but not for you. Do you see the difference? For you means whatever you do, I have to control and it reflects on me, and I don't want to look bad in front of others, so I need you to conform. Whereas responsible to you says, hey, it's my obligation, and out of love, I'm going to talk to you, and I'm going to present your choices, but then I have to leave you to your consequences. So uh, do you find that helpful? Nod your head like, yeah, okay, helpful. It's a pot, listen, it's a posture and it's an attitude. And here's the thing. Uh, our personalities just kind of break out. You can either, your personalities are going to be prone to, well, let me say this. Our fallenness will pr- always push us towards the demand. We just have different personalities on how we do it. If you have a more aggressive, outgoing personality, you'll just be very controlling like the Apostle Paul. If you're a more laid-back uh, person, you just do your manipulation in different ways. Are, are you, and you take responsibility for the situation in different ways. So some people are going to be more, hey, you need to do this. And some people are going to say, let me do this for you. But it's the same attitude. It's taking the role of them away from them and really robbing or showing a lack of trust in God 
to do what only he can do. So those are the, the, so make a request, not a ruling. We've seen that Christ requires us to do it. He prefers to request it. And here's the third principle. Christ has earned our respect to make the request. Christ has earned our respect to make the request. Now, in all these points, I'm saying Christ, but in the letter, it's Paul. Why? Because Paul is the Christ-like mediator in the letter. So, notice what he says. Since I am, he's drawing on their mutual respect. He says, since I am such a person as Paul, the aged, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. In the New American Standard, it has like dashes there because he's like, he's pausing and he's saying, I want to make this appeal. But before I make this appeal, I want to talk about our mutual respect. He he wants to remind Philemon, I've earned the respect for you to listen and really do what I'm asking you to do. Now, it's been said, listen to this. When people respect you as a friend, they love you. Therefore, he says, Paul, your friend. When people respect you as a person, they admire you. He says, the aged, one who is mature, one who is wise. When people respect you as a leader, they follow you. And Paul says, I'm the kind of leader that is so committed that I'm a prisoner of Christ right now. You see, all of that, you could respect Paul as a friend. You could respect Paul as a person. And you could respect Paul as a leader. I want to love you because you're a friend. I, want to admire, I admire you because you're that kind of person. I will follow you because you're that kind of leader. That is what Paul's trying to get Philemon to say. So how can you and I do that? Earn the respect to make the request by being four things. First, be a person of change. Be a person of change. Be a converted person with a changed life. I love how he says this. He says, since I am such a person. Basically, he's saying, pause and think about how God's changed my life. Pause and consider my character. You talk about a convicting. You know, we want to get in and fix our kids or our friends or our church or whatever. We want to fix problems. First of all, we got to ask ourselves, when I enter into this, do people, do I have character? Has Christ changed my life? Do I earn the respect to be listened to. Number two, be a person of compassion. Be a person of compassion. He says, Paul. He doesn't say, listen to me, I am the apostle to the Gentiles. He doesn't say, listen to me, Christ met me on the road to Damascus. I have all authority in Christ. He just says, listen to me, your friend, Paul. No titles, no pretension. I'm coming here as Paul. You're you, I'm me, 
We're in this together. Be a brother. If the first one is about being a learner with a changed life, this is about being a brother or sister with a compassionate heart. Number three, be a person of character. It takes more than compassion. You need to be a person of character. He says the aged one. (coughs) Excuse me, the older one. The one who has the battle scars. This is a guy who's been beaten for Christ. This is a guy whose back is mauled with scars of being beaten with 40 lashes three different times. You ever seen that picture of the uh, African-American slave with his back? It's a very famous picture. That's what Paul's back looked like. And he said, look, I've got the experience. I've got the wisdom. Be a person of character. Number three, be a person of conviction. You want to earn the, re- the, earn the respect to make the request to reconcile then you've got to be a person of conviction, the prisoner of Christ. Paul is writing because his convictions and his commitment is so strong, he is willing to eventually be beheaded for it. A commitment to sacrifice. So when you look at these four things, a changed life, a compassionate heart, a proven track record over time, and a commitment to sacrifice. That's how you earn the right to make the request to reconcile. I don't know if you're old enough, um, betraying my age. Rodney Dangerfield is a comedian. It's almost a useless illustration, I realize, time-wise, who uh, made a whole... Uh, reputation of comedy about not being respected, all right? So here's he says, I get no respect from my dog. The other day, the dog went to the door and started to bark. So I went over and opened it. The dog didn't want to go out. He wanted me to leave. Okay, this guy made a whole, he made millions, okay? People get treated like Rodney Dangerfield because they think a position or title guarantees respect, and Paul sets them all aside and just says, Paul. People get disrespected because they think age or experience guarantees respect. But when Paul says, I am the aged, that can also mean I am the elder in the sense that I have not just grown old, I have grown up in Christ. I'm not coming at you as the, you know, because I'm older than you, you've got to listen to me. It's no, I've grown up in Christ. So I ask you, we're all, growing old's not an option. Growing up is the choice. And then the third way people get disrespected like Rodney Dangerfield is that they think they need to be accepted by others. And therefore, you do the wrong thing in reconciliation because I need my family to to love me. I need my friend to accept me. I mean, think about this guy. His family was coming to him and saying, Dad, don't do this transplant. He, He had to literally risk and he could have died. And if he had just listened to his family, his friend, you know, it's just a beautiful thing. So the first step 
in removing roadblocks to reconciliation is we got to earn the respect to make the request and don't make it a ruling, a demand, or a command. Stage two, seek to reconcile, not resolve. This is huge. Seek to reconcile, not resolve. Look at verses 10 and 11. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and me. So here's the first principle we derive from that. The goal in removing roadblocks is to reconcile people, not solve problems. How many are problem solvers here? How many are problem solvers? More than Vicky. Thank you. Well, we have two. How many lack the energy to raise their hand? Okay. There's problem solvers. Some of you guys are problem solvers, right? And, and that's my, my, and it's just, I, I just see, I see it in myself. I see it in others. Someone tells you a, a, a problem and the first thing out of our mouths, well, here's what you need to do. Here's what I would do. Or I was in that situation and I did this. That's not the first thing that Paul does. The goal in removing roadblocks is to reconcile people, not solve problems. And by the way, this is why we don't really know what the problem is between Onesimus and Philemon. We have all sorts of speculations, and I presented some of them to you, but we actually don't know the problem. Why? Because the issue is the people more than the problem. The problem is never really the problem. So look how he starts. I appeal to you for Onesimus. He starts with the people, not the problem. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus. He begins on the basis of reconciling the relationship, not resolving the problem. And he did this not only in Philemon, but in Philippians. So turn to Philippians 4, 2 through 3. Philippians 4, 2 through 3. This is a pattern of how Paul deals. So, you know, this is a funny thing. I don't know, I, I'm paraphrasing and I'm, I'm brutalizing a proverb that's in the Bible. But it's, it's, it's the idea of don't get involved in other people's problems or you're going to get bitten like a dog or something. I don't know. You know, the, the point is, you know, if you intrude, but the reality is that's true. But in your, when you're in relationship with people, Paul was constantly mediating. He did it for Philemon and Onesimus, and he did it for these two women, Yodia and Syntyche. Great names. I implore. So look at Philippians 4, 2 through 3. I implore Yodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, a true friend is a mediator, a true brother in Christ. Help these women. Once again, we don't know the problem, but we know the people. And what's he say? Help these women 
who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. <coughs> I'm sorry, I got a catch today. Um, so what we're talking about here are believers in Christ. Okay, you try to do this with unbelievers, it's not going to work until they come to Christ. So here's the principles. When it comes to removing roadblocks to reconciliation, the goal is not to take sides, but build unity. Paul doesn't go in there and say, true companion, sit down with them, figure out who's wrong, figure out who's right, and fix the problem. He says, no, I want you to reconcile and promote. He says, I implore them to be of the same mind, promote unity, strive for oneness. Therefore, you need to remain neutral. Your goal isn't, hey, I like this person, I like this person less, so I'm going to be on this person's side. The goal is not to find out who's wrong and then find out who's right and get on the side of the person that's right. The goal is to reconcile the two. Listen, if you start siding, if you begin to be one-sided in your favor of one or the other, you now are part of the problem. And you're no longer able to be a true Christ-like mediator. So here's some principles. Don't agree or disagree until, first of all, you have all the facts and you've heard from both the people. Because Proverbs says this, and again, I'm paraphrasing, you know, that the first person you hear sounds right until you hear the other person. So, and, and let, me, let me just say this, because we have to in the environment that we're in. We're not talking about, I'm, this is not a lesson on abuse. If abuse is reported, you immediately report that. So we're not talking about those kind of a very real, very painful situation. We're talking about the kind of stuff that comes up on a daily basis. Listen to both sides. Above all, guard against taking up the offenses of others. So here's what, again, the problem solver dives in there, figures out what side God, you know, okay, I'm not going to take sides. I'm on God's side. Now I'm going to be God's avenger. No, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Okay? So, this is just good stuff. Okay, second, the goal is not to gang up on one another, but build up one another. Okay? You say, Chris, this is really obvious. Yeah, it's obvious until you're in the problem. (laughs) It's obvious until you're the one that has to mediate. Okay? So, the goal is not to gang up, but build up. Be positive. I like what Paul does with these two women. He says he strives for unity. He doesn't take sides. He tells the mediator, the true companion, help them, don't fix them. But then he talks about the positives in their life. These women have labored for me. This conflict doesn't define them. This conflict doesn't define how I view them. One of the hardest things as a pastor is to get the flock to realize that when you come and get counseling or confess, that we don't pigeonhole you. That's not how we see you or define you. 
Well, that's just, you got problems just like I do. You've sinned just like I've sinned. Look at the bigger picture and who they are in Christ. Your conflict doesn't have to define you, and it doesn't define you. Your your unreconciled relationships do not define your standing in Christ Jesus. Christ does that. And then finally, the goal is not to quickly resolve the issue, but to reconcile the people, which is often messy and lengthy. The goal is not to quickly resolve the issue, but to rec- now again, this goes back to problem solvers, what? You know, let me watch the YouTube video, let me get the parts, let me fix the toilet, like I will Monday with Dan on speed dial in case. You just want to fix people that way. Show me a video, show me the scripture, let's just fix it. Are you with me? But some of us have personalities of peacemakers. Let's just get this over with so that we can have a happy holiday. Let's just get this resolved. Let's just get this fixed so that we can be family again. Okay? But it's messy and it is time consuming and it can take a lot of time. Listen to me. There's a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. You can be forgiving towards someone and yet never get reconciled. And there is a difference between reconciliation and resolution of a problem. You can reconcile people and sometimes the problem doesn't always get resolved. Some issues will never be resolved, but people can still be reconciled, but not always. Not always. This side of heaven, we live east of Eden and this side of heaven. And that means not all prayers are answered, not all problems are resolved, and not all relationships are reconciled due to needing to establish biblical boundaries, and you're waiting on God to do His work. Well... If the goal is to reconcile people and not solve problems, then the goal is accomplished by choosing people over problems. Choose people over problems. Doesn't mean mean you ignore the problem and you don't deal with it, but you do it in a way like Paul does in verse 10. Look in verse 10. He says... Onesimus, whom I've begotten in imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful. Two principles from these verses. Choose reconciling people to God and others over your own comfort and convenience. Did Paul need another problem on his to-do list? He is in prison. And yet he is in prison. And in in Philippians, he's in prison. He is not focused on himself and his problems. And that's the problem I think we have today. We are so inward focused that we just don't look outward and 
aren't willing to serve, not willing to step up, not willing to help the the body and the fellowship of Christ. Secondly, choosing choose reconciling with others over being right. You know what he says? Was Philemon, in this problem with Philemon and Onesimus, as far as we know, based on what we know, was Philemon in the right? Yes. Was Onesimus in the wrong? Yes. But Paul's asking Philemon to choose reconciliation over being right and making others pay for being wrong. That's the posture we don't want. And it's the posture of our fallen hearts because we think we're deserving and other people obviously aren't. So I'm going to make them pay because I'm right and they're wrong, so they need to pay. And Christ says, no, we're all, or Paul says, no, we're all undeserving. And Christ has come in to the undeserving and paid our debt that we owed but couldn't pay. He paid that which he did not owe so that he could reconcile us to himself and to one another. Now, this doesn't mean you ignore their wrong, but you do stop seeing them just in light of their wrong. That's the money quote right there. So you say, well, how do I view them? Like a new creation in Christ. Like a new creation in Christ. And what is a new creation? It's someone that has been converted by the compassion of Christ and who is in the process of change. And you know what you say when you're in a, in a difficult situation? But I don't see them changing the way I want. On the ta- timetable, I have decided. Well, guess what? You're not God, and neither am I. And so we look at those who are truly converted. We look at them as a new creation, as someone who's been converted and in the process. Maybe they're changing. Maybe they're not. But true change is an internal work that is not always seen externally. I don't know what all's going on in your hearts this week, and I don't fully know what's going on in mine. That's why we connect with the Lord, and that's why we connect with one another. Hey, I tell you, this Greg's friend, Howard, or I just made up his name. I think it's Stephen Bramer. When he needed a transplant, he had a friendship and a fellowship that he had someone who would step up for him and didn't do it because he had to, but did it because he had the fellowship of an effective faith and out of love was willing to sacrifice a kidney, a body part for his friend and just felt led to do it of the Lord. And it had an influence on a whole hospital floor. We can too.
stage one and two. You don't want to miss stage three, four, and five next week. Let's pray. Lord, this is heavy stuff, but you're a great God. What a Savior. What a, what a Lord. What a servant. What a reconciler. What a mediator. And Lord, I, I've been burdened in this week praying for our class, people in our class. We all have these kind of issues in our lives. And I pray the truth of the gospel would be applied to hearts this morning and next week. And that we would reflect Christ like Paul is reflecting. And we would be transformed like Paul, the controller, like Philemon, the rejecter, and like Onesimus, who was useless but became useful through Christ Jesus. We pray this in His name. Amen.